a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place saw, and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Let's pray. Father, in the words of the old Anglican pastor, what we are not make us, what we have not give us, and what we know not teach us. Open your word for us this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. So, you're familiar with this story. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, you often heard it, um, maybe on the news, when someone does a good deed for someone, the, the, the news anchor will say, uh, we have a Good Samaritan. Uh, you probably heard it taught many a times in Sunday schools. Uh, I remember one, especially when I was a kid, the Sunday school was, why I ought to share my lunch with my fellow students in the lunchroom. Uh, I taught this once in, in an adult Bible study. And the adults, or the men, it was a men's Bible study, the men latched on to the idea of the Samaritan, and they wanted to talk about how many times they had stopped on the side of the road to help someone change a tire. Uh, and this was their equivalent of being the good Samaritan. Now the problem with this is, we are completely missing the point. Okay, So I would submit to you, and this is my claim, that the parable of the good Samaritan is not about teaching us to be a good neighbor. That is, a, that is a secondary, at best, application of this passage. Okay, and the reason I started right at the parable is because that's how, often, that's how we read it often, is that we start with the parable itself. We want to make ourselves out to be the Good Samaritan. When the parable is not really about the Good Samaritan. Let's go back to the context, starting in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up, and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So this sets the context. This sets why Jesus gives the parable. So a lawyer comes up to him. Well, who's a lawyer? Well, in simple terms, a lawyer is an expert in Judaism. He knew the law, probably had it memorized uh, backwards and forwards. And typically lawyers in, 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 in the text and in, in scripture uh, weren't really friendly with Jesus. Uh, oftentimes the Pharisees and the Sadducees would bring lawyers, or sometimes you hear it said scribes, it's one and the same. These scribes and lawyers would be brought with the Pharisees who were trying to trap Jesus. They would try to get him uh, to stumble in his, in his teaching so that they could show that he was a uh, false teacher and therefore win the day. Uh, so they would look to these scribes and, and these lawyers and say, give us something to use. And, and they would give them something, and then they would attack Jesus, trying to give him to, to stump him. And so Jesus doesn't have a really good relationship with the lawyers at this point in Scripture. Later he'll say, uh, you scribes, you, you, you hypocrites, you're like whitewashed tombs. Not loving language that they had for one another. 
And so this is the, the person that is coming to Jesus. Now, to be fair, in this instance, this text alone doesn't really tell us that the lawyer is trying to uh, trip up Jesus. It's more, of, it's more uh, kind of a simple, here's a lawyer coming, and he's asking Jesus a question. However, from the, the rest of the time that Jesus has interactions with the scribes, we can kind of uh, guess that this lawyer doesn't have necessarily the right intentions. And so he comes up to Jesus, and, and even the word put him to a test, uh, it sounds very negative in, in the English, uh, but it, it can just give this connotation of he's, he's asking a clarifying question. So it doesn't have to be negative, although we're going to take it negative. Uh, because at the very least, the lawyer is not a good guy. Later, he tries to justify himself, tried to maintain some sort of self-righteousness. So we, we know at his heart, he, he, like the rest of us, is an evil man uh, at, at our core. And so he's coming to Jesus, uh, asking him a question, and he says, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Interesting question, is it not? You remember uh, another man that came up to Jesus and asked this question? Uh, in Luke, a few chapters later, Luke 18, the rich young ruler comes up and says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And the man, very self-righteously, says, All these I've kept from my youth. And Jesus heard this and said to him, But you will still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Jesus picks out that one thing that the man was not willing to give up, to submit to Christ, and the man walks away sad. And so the same question is being asked here by the lawyer. It's, it tells us it was a common question. It was constantly being talked about by Jesus and the disciples, this idea of eternal life. The Jews were hoping to attain it, but they were hoping to attain it by their works. You can see in the question, actually, what shall I do? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Let's look how Jesus responds to him. He says to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Essentially, not giving Jesus too much of a sarcastic character, Jesus is saying, well, you're the lawyer. You're the expert in Judaism. You're the expert in the law. What does it say? And he says another phrase, how do you read it? We can also translate this, how do you recite it? Jesus is actually referencing here a, uh, a common uh, phrase or, or groups of phrases that, Jesus, that the Jews would wake up every morning and recite. And then they would go to bed reciting this same uh, group of phrases. They called it the Shema. Okay? And so what was the Shema? What did, what did they recite morning and evening? Well, Jesus says it here, or the lawyer responds, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Okay, so you see now that this is the Shema, at least part of the Shema. This is what they recite. And where do we get this? Well, the Jews got it from Deuteronomy. Uh, when, when Moses was giving them the law, uh, he says that uh, if you will indeed obey my commandments, and I command you, Deuteronomy chapter 11, um, to, to love the Lord your God and serve him with all your heart, with all your soul, and he will give you rain for your land. Uh, a little while later, he says, you shall lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children, uh, talking of them when you are sitting in your house, 
when you are walking by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates, uh, that your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give them as long as the heavens are above the earth. And later on you'll see... Uh, and they'll add in Leviticus 19, you shall not take uh, the vengeance or bear a grudge against your sons, your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So this is where they get the Shema. Now, what did the Jews do with this? We, we know at least 500 B.C. that the Jews had taken this quite literally. They would uh, take these phrases and they would bind them in little boxes, which you can still see Orthodox Jews do today, on their hands. Because what does it say? Bind them to your hands. What did they all say? Bind them in, in, in the middle of your eyes. They, to this day, Orthodox Jews will wear a box on their foreheads uh, during certain religious ceremonies. And guess what's contained inside? The Shema. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. They have boxes or little uh, uh, things nailed to their doorposts. Because they took Moses' thing literally to nail it to your doorpost. And guess what's contained inside of that? The Shema is still there. Um, every morning they would wake up, and to this day they recite the Shema. And when they go to bed, they recite the Shema. This is, this is what Jesus is saying. You're reciting this constantly. What are you reciting? What does it actually tell you that how you may inherit eternal life? And the man says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And look what Jesus says to him. You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Here's what the man's asking. What can I do to inherit eternal life? And, and Jesus says, well, you know what to do. The man says, yes, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus is like, correct, do that, and you'll live. Do that, and you'll have eternal life. It's kind of interesting that a very similar situation happened uh, to Jesus in Matthew chapter 22. Uh, this question was kind of reversed. The Pharisees heard that, they had, that he, Jesus, had silenced the Sadducees. And they gathered together, one of them, a lawyer, same person, not the same person in, in exactly, but the same type of person, asked him the question to test him. Again, same kind of motive. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the, first, the great and first commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So you, you have this mentality, this idea that Jesus is telling him exactly what he must do uh, in and of himself to inherit eternal life. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Now the emphasis is on the term all. And so what Jesus is saying here, what's contained in the Shema is all, meaning every ounce and fiber of your being, all the time, in keyword, perfectly. Okay, so this is what Jesus is saying. You need to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength all the time, perfectly. Do that, and you'll inherit eternal life. What's the problem here? Can't do it. This is, everybody in this situation understood what Jesus was doing. He was telling the man, you have to be perfect, then you can inherit eternal life. Now, what do we know about this love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Well, uh, to, keep it, to keep it short, uh, all the heart means to, to love him with all your faculties, of all your powers, to love him supremely, more than other beings or things, or with, with all the, the ardor that you, can, to, that you can bring up. To love him with all the heart is to fix your, all your affections supremely on him so that you'd be willing up to give, to give everything else 
up for him at any moment, all the time, perfectly. With all your soul means with all your life. It means to, to be willing to give up your life for him, to devote every ounce of your life to his service, to live for him, and to be willing to die at his command all the time, perfectly. With all your mind means with all your intellect. So, so you're supposed to love his law and gospel and, and do everything with your mind, being willing to submit all your faculties and your learning to his teaching and guidance and devote all your intellectual capabilities to him all the time perfectly. With all your strength, you're supposed to do this with all the faculties of your soul and body to labor and toil for his glory all the time perfectly. So you get this sense that Jesus is saying, you need to live for me, live for God, obey God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, all the time, perfectly. And I can't stress that enough, all the time, perfectly. And Jesus says, do that and you will live. We've already recognized the problem. No one can do this. In fact, you, you, you understand that the lawyer understands this as well. Because look what he tries to do. But he, desiring to justify himself, what does justify entail? You're trying to maintain a self-righteousness. You're trying to declare yourself righteous. And so this man, knowing that Jesus has just told him he's not righteous enough to get to heaven, to inherit heaven, this man, desiring to maintain some sort of self-righteousness, says, and who is my neighbor? Notice what he skips over. He skips over the love of the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because no fool in their right mind is going to try to justify himself saying, I've loved God perfectly all the time. He knows that's a fool's errand. So what does he go? He skips over that, and he goes to the second commandment. Well, who is my neighbor? Justifying himself, trying to justify himself, meaning he thinks that he has loved his neighbor as he ought. Now, what's the, what's the problem with this? Well, uh, the Jews had narrowed down this definition of what it means to love your neighbor. Why did they do that? When, when it was given, it was given as a kind of a general statement. You were supposed to love uh, everybody. That's how Jesus intended it to mean. You were supposed to love everybody as your neighbor. What happened to the Jews? Well, the Jews, when you start getting attacked by all the Philistines and stuff like that, it's really hard to love people that are raping and pillaging your people all the time. So obviously, they're not my neighbor. That's not what that's not what God meant to love my neighbor. Oh, what about the, the Samaritans when, uh, when, when they, uh, we came back from captivity and then there's these mixed uh, religious Jews-ish there that have started worshiping other gods that have intermarried with other uh, ethnic peoples and, and false religions. Uh, what, how did we treat them? Well, they're not really our neighbors either. Uh, we don't want to love them. So by the time Jesus was around, the Jews had boiled down this definition of loving your neighbor to basically someone just like you. I want to love someone just like me, probably in my same neighborhood. I don't want to love the people, to, to use a reference here, I don't want to love the people in Chester. They're not like us. They're, they're, not, they're not of us. I want to love people just like me here in this area. That's how the Jews had boiled it down. So in his mind, he was probably thinking, yeah, I have loved my neighbor because they had limited this definition of neighbor to being someone just like him. And so this is the occasion upon which Jesus gives the parable. The parable is designed to show him that no, just how, you, in the same way that you've not loved God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you haven't really loved your neighbor either. And so this is the point of the parable. Let's go into it. A man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho telling us that this man was a Jew. 
He fell among robbers. This is a, a popular place to rob and, and kill people in this little corridor. Um, 300 years later, the Muslims are killing and, and robbing their own people in the same corridor. 300 years before this happened, or the, Jesus' parable, the Jews were doing it there as well and then the other peoples in the area. So this is a popular place to do this. Uh, so he goes and he gets, uh, he, fall, he falls among robbers. You know, they, they stripped him, they beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. The idea is a very flowering way of saying, had no one intervened, this man would die. That's kind of what Jesus is getting across here. Here's a man dying, and if no one helps, he will die. And so, now by chance, quite interesting that Jesus himself, who is sovereign over all things, says by chance, but that's another side, side thing. By chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Why is, now, if you were hearing this as a first century Jew, you would have gasped. Why would you have gasped? Because the one person out of all of Israel, out of everyone in the area that should have stopped and helped that man was his shepherd. That's what a priest was. He was the shepherd of the man. He was the one uh, responsible by God, held responsible for not only the spiritual, but in some sense the physical well-being of the flock of God. Be essentially one of us laying on the side of the road and Pastor Jim looking at us, being like, I don't want to mess with that today, and walking on the side of the road. You know, you, we, we like to give this, this priest tons of reasons as to why he didn't help the man. But again, Jesus is telling a story, a fictional story, that is not, intended, is not real, but it's intended to make a point. The one man who was supposed to stop and help him didn't. Okay? Which, keep in, kind, keep in mind the context of loving your neighbor. This was his neighbor, even the one that was just like him. He didn't stop and help him. And so, likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now, you would gasp again. Why is this? Because a Levite was a member of the priestly family. So this, they would have been in charge of the, the temple, taking care of the things of, the, things of God. Essentially, this is your elders or your deacons. They would come and, and, and see this man and walk by on the other side, again, not wanting to love their neighbor, who they would even define as neighbor. But a Samaritan, and again, now you gasp a third time for a different reason. Because as an ethnic Jew, you hated, amongst all other people, you hated them more than the Romans, you hated the Samaritans. Why did you hate the Samaritans so much? Well, imagine you as the Jews... You got taken over by the Assyrians and the Babylonians, taken into captivity. Well, they would only take some, the leaders of the Jews, and take them, but they would leave a lot of people behind. And what they would do is they would take people from other conquered nations, and they would fill them into your land so that you could no longer have a, a unified defense of the state, and you would naturally start uh, intermarrying and stuff. And so the Jews intermarried with other foreign peoples. Before long, they were a kind of a, a conglomerate, Heinz 57-type religious group. All sorts of flavors involved. And so the Jews came back under the Persians, and guess who welcomed them to town? The ones, the Jews, the ancestors that had stayed behind. They welcomed them to town. We're glad you're back. Thank you for coming. Uh, we know you're going to build the temple, rebuild the walls. Let us help you. And the Jews who had remained faithful all this time said, No, we don't want your help. You're no longer uh, pure in a sense. And so they spurned the, 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 this mixed race people, if you would. Okay, so fast forward a little bit. Now the temple is built. They want to come worship. The Jews are like, nope, 
you no longer can be here because you're no longer 100% Jewish and you're no longer following our God, you're following false gods. We don't want you here. So what the Samaritans do? They built their own temple. We'll just build our own temple. We'll worship there. Well, now you've just offended the Jews. So what do the Jews do? They, well, they go and burn down the temple that the Samaritans had just built. Okay? So this is happening hundreds of years before Jesus. And at Jesus' time, there, there was hatred on both sides. It wasn't as if the Samaritans loved the Jews. And they're just they're upset that the Jews hate them. They hate each other at this point. So much so that if the Jew was walking to, uh, to the point past Samaria, they would walk around Samaria. They didn't even want to go in, which is why it's a huge moment when Jesus walks into Samaria and sits down at a well and talks, starts talking with ladies, uh, or a lady at the well. It's a huge, let alone talking to a, to a, to a lady who's kind of a prostitute, but just walking into the town would have been a huge, huge occasion for Jesus to do this. And so the point is they hate each other. So I'm an Ohio State fan. I, this would be like a Michigan fan being on the side of the road. Uh, this would be him. I, I do not like him. Okay? And the Samaritan notice, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Key phrase. The Samaritan had compassion. The one who was his neighbor, by the Jewish definition, didn't have compassion. The priest, the Levite, didn't have compassion. The Samaritan, who hates that man on the side of the road, had compassion. And he went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, very expensive commodities in that day. The pouring on gives this idea of very liberally dumping it on, not taking a cotton swab and cleaning it off with a Q-tip, something like that. He is dumping this on. Showing, sparing no expense. He set him on his own animal, which does two things. One, it makes you at uh, risk now for being the next victim of the robbers because now you're being slowly walking through caring for an injured man. Uh, but also it, it ruins your day. Whatever you had planned is done. Now you are taking care of him. That is your primary objective. He goes, uh, bounds up his wounds, put on oil and wine, set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. He personally took care of him. He didn't just pass him off to someone else. And the next day, meaning he spent all night now taking care of this man, keeping him alive, he took out two denarii, which is not an impressive amount. It's a, a denarii is basically a day's wage. But he takes out two days' wage and gives it to the innkeeper. Now, it's impressive when you consider how much a, a, a night in an inn costs. It's about one sixteenth to one thirtieth, depending on the on the day, I guess, uh, of of a denarii. So essentially, this man put up about a month and a half, maybe two months, rent for this man to continue being healed. And then he tells the innkeeper, who, by the way, were notoriously corrupt. They would always try, especially if you're if you're out of town or a stranger, they would try to overcharge you and stuff like this. He says, "I'm going to go away." And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Essentially, he's giving a crook a blank check and saying, whatever you spend to take care of this man in the future, I will repay when I come back, knowing full well that this man is probably going to, to, to raise prices and all kind of bogus charges and so on and so forth. And so he goes out of his way. And this is, Jesus is making this man sound like a very, very generous man. And then he directs his attention back to the lawyer, Jesus does, and he says this, which of these three do you uh, think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? We all know the answer, but here's how we know that Jesus hit a chord. 
struck a chord in the man's heart. Notice what the lawyer does not say. Does the lawyer say, oh, the Samaritan? He doesn't even use the man's ethnic identity. He says the one. It's a small detail, but it's an important detail. The one. What is he recognizing already? That he doesn't love Samaritans. He won't even use their name. The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus uses the same, almost the same exact phrase as he used before. You go and do likewise, implying that he doesn't now love the Samaritans. And so what he is saying to this man is, uh, what can I do to inherit eternal life? You need to love God perfectly. Well, I can't do that. Okay, but I need to justify myself. What about loving my neighbor? I've done that, right? Jesus says, no, actually, you haven't done that either. You start doing now. Go, go, go and love him now. And the story ends. It's a really crazy ending to the story. We don't, we don't get to see how it resolves itself. The rich young ruler walked away sad. Uh, other instances, we see men coming to the man born blind, falls on his knees and worships God. We don't know what happens in this instance. And I think Luke does that on purpose. Okay, so what do we, what do we know? We know first in, in point of conclusion that, that salvation cannot be achieved by works. Right? So uh, the man says, what can I do to inherit eternal life? And, and Jesus says, you need to be perfect. And you can't be perfect. That's the point. Ephesians brings this up. For by grace you are saved through faith. It is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a, which, by the way, that phrase, the gift of God, it is the way the Greek is kind of worded. It means everything that came before it. Not only the grace by which you were saved is a gift of God, but the faith that you were saved through is also a gift from God. Uh, all that is a gift from God, not a result of works. You can't do anything to earn your salvation. And the point is, so no one can boast. At no point can we ever say we attributed anything to our salvation. So uh, a Puritan once said it this way, uh, Jonathan Edwards, he says, the only thing you bring to your salvation is the sin that made your salvation necessary. Right? And so salvation is not by works. Also, point two, we have no righteousness of our own anyway. That's the idea in the second point. That the man says, desiring to justify himself, he can't justify himself on the first law. He can't justify himself on the second law. And Jesus says, on those two laws depend the entire law and the prophets. So there's no form of righteousness that we have. We have nothing. As Paul later says in Romans, it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. But now the righteousness of God has been made manifest apart from the law. And though the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe, for there is no distinction, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. All that to say is your salvation is provided through the righteousness of God, nothing of our own. So we have we, have, so we can't work our way to heaven because we have no self-righteousness. And this is where the story ends, unless you consider who's writing it. This is Luke writing here post-resurrection. And here he, he adds inherently in the story a great irony. Here's a lawyer asking questions about eternal life. Asking questions about how he can enter an eternal life. Asking questions about, don't I have some sort of self-righteousness? And the great irony of the story is, who is he talking to? Do you see the irony that Luke places here? Who is the lawyer talking to? 
What does Jesus give to those who believe in him? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting or eternal life. That's the great irony of the story. A man comes seeking eternal life by his own works, and here's one who is willing to give it to him by faith. So then the man wants his self-righteousness. Who is he talking to? The righteousness of God in human flesh? Who by which we are saved? This righteousness that he was trying to seek and, and attain on his own works? Jesus is willing to, to impute to him by faith. And so do you see the gospel in the parable of the Good Samaritan? Jesus is, at the very least, Luke is, is showing us that it is not our own works that save, because we have no righteousness of our own, but we have a Savior who can and does save who can and will give you eternal life, not based on any righteousness of your own, but based on his which he grants through faith. The gospel, according to